1: We now rejoin today's message already in progress. How many of you would be willing to take off half a day and meet at the church and pray for three or four hours for revival? Hmm? I bet not many. I bet if the pastor said that he was going to start a one o'clock to five o'clock revival this Friday and would you take off work and come meet him at the church there would probably only be one or two people, and those would be the one or two people that always come to whatever the pastor asks for. Amen. You see, this man, after he spent the entire afternoon in prayer, the man felt led to go talk to his pastor and ask him to open up the church next day, the very next day, for a special service. The pastor tried to talk him out of it because it was a work day and he was afraid nobody would show up. But the man kept pressing him so eventually the pastor reluctantly agreed to do so. The next day when it came time for the service and the pastor walked out, he was shocked to see that the church was completely full. He didn't know what to do since he had not really expected anybody to show up. So he didn't even prepare a message. So they all just sat there in silence for several minutes until one man broke out and started begging for someone to pray for him. Others did the same. Before they knew it, revival had broken out and people's lives were being changed. Take note of this, pastors. The pastor did not preach. Sometimes, as Abraham Lincoln once said, sometimes it's better to remain silent and thought a fool than to speak up and remove all doubt. Amen? Most pastors think they are the gifted orators from God, that they have a gift to speak. It's not so. You should be the mouthpiece of God while in the pulpit. But sometimes God has to say, Shut up, fool! I'm working on something here. You know, you heard me tell a story that I was preaching in a church, and it was a good sermon. I mean, I had the complete 40... I would have to rush to get in 45 minutes. It'd be probably closer to an hour that I'd be preaching. And I got 15 minutes into my sermon. And the Holy Spirit told me, okay, stop preaching, give the invitation. And (laughs) when you look at the video, I'm out in front with the people, and I just stop when I heard the Holy Spirit say that. And I turned around, walked back up to the pulpit, put both hands on the side of the pulpit, and just bowed my head. It looked like I was praying, and I was. I was praying to God, arguing with God to be more accurate. In my mind and in my spirit, saying, God, it's only been 15 minutes. I got at least another half hour. I got a good sermon here. And the Holy Spirit said again, shut it down and give the invitation. So I looked up and told the people, the Holy Spirit just told me to shut it down and give the invitation. So I went through the invitation. One person came forward. From the back of the room, a deacon in the church came forward and gave his heart to the Lord. You see, he had been deceived into thinking he had been saved all his life, but whatever it was I said in that sermon, it convicted him. And he told the Lord, you know, he he just wanted to run down the altar and get saved right then. So the Holy Spirit made it possible. So you see, you don't have to preach an entire message. Follow the promptings of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Sometimes God just has to say, "Shut up! I'm working on something here." And when you try and argue with them, you know, about well, I still got 20 minutes or whatever. He says, shut up, fool. And you can either obey God or not. If I would have ignored what the Holy Spirit was saying and kept on going, the devil would have talked this deacon out of doing that. Because it had already started in his mind, because what do you mean you're going to go up front? You told people you are saved 15 years ago. What's going to happen? What are they going to think? But because I obeyed the Holy Spirit that fast, The man had not had an opportunity to ponder those thoughts. Amen? So, in the story we just talked about with the man, the blacksmith, and the revival in the church, somebody later discovered that people all over town began being convicted of their sinful lifestyles at just about the same time that the old blacksmith closed his doors and started praying at his shop. The Bible tells us if we want God to heal our land, if we want God to send another great revival, that we are going to have to pray like we have never prayed before. We're going to have to be so burdened for the lost and for our community that we will go without food and without water, maybe even sleep in order to pray and plead with God to send the convicting power of the Holy Spirit upon the residents of this town or nation, wherever you may live. I don't know about you, but I know I need to lose some weight, and I'm working on it. I know I need to eat healthier and get some exercise. I'm working it. I've, I've made some progress, but I don't always follow the plan. Amen. Sometimes I try to justify what I eat by saying I just don't have time to cook, so let's go through the drive through Or I try to justify my lack of exercise by saying that I've got too much work to do and I can't even take the time to go for a walk. The reality is, the truth of the matter is, I want to eat that fast food and I don't want to exercise. I'm not proud of it but the truth sometimes hurts. Amen? If you are being honest with yourself, you do the exact same thing. Unfortunately, many Christians have the same type of attitude when it comes to spiritual disciplines of prayer and Bible study. You know you need to spend more time reading God's word and praying, but you justify your disobedience By convincing yourself that you're too busy. And God will understand. That's just an excuse. I usually get up somewhere between 4 and 5 a.m. Maybe 6 on the weekends. You see, I get my Bible study finished First thing in the mornings, my prayer time, my alone time with God, just being ministered to. Then, no matter how busy I am during the day, I know my priorities started right. Amen. If I know I need to be somewhere early, maybe catching a flight or whatever, I adjust my wake-up time two hours before I need to leave to do this. So I have to leave, let's say, for the airport at 5 a.m. to catch a 6.30 flight somewhere. I get up at 3. I'm still going to do my alone time with God. I'm not bragging. Don't say, Brother Bob's bragging. No, I'm not doing that here. It's an example. I'm just giving it to you as an example. Are you following God or are you following the world? If you're following God, what does the scripture say? In Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Then what? All these other things will be added to you. So if you get up earlier than you have to in order to study God's word and spend time with him in prayer, I call that putting God first. So what's his part to add to you the things you need, including the energy to get through the day by walking up or waking up two hours early. Amen. The truth of the matter is, the majority of Christians today, they don't want to read their Bibles or pray. They want to do what everybody else is doing. They want to talk on their cell phones. They want to text. They want to surf the internet. They want to play video games. They want to watch TV or go to the movies or listen to hours upon hours of music on their iPods. Maybe, just maybe, we need to be reminded about what Paul said in Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. He said, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I believe that's the problem in America today. Too many Christians and too many churches have conformed to the pattern they see in the world. What do I mean by that? Well, many people go to church to be entertained instead of going to worship God. don't get me wrong I don't see anything wrong with having a good time at church but if the only reason a person comes to church is to be entertained then something something is definitely wrong with that person's relationship to God. you know give me a second here. Some people, will use the excuse of going to church for the worship service because it's a famous church. I'll I'll, I'll just call them out. I'll use the name Hillsong Church from Australia. Darlene Sheck made them famous. And people would go to church to listen to Hillsong's music they forgot about whatever the sermon was about because they were just there for the music. Then on the other end of it, I remember uh, Jesse Duplantis was coming to Austin, Texas. Jesse Duplantis, if you're not aware of it, he's a very famous preacher who is able to tell stories that just have you laughing at the guy. It's like a comedian But the messages that are contained in his stories really hit home. He uses the the comedic effect to get people to drop their guard. And then he hits them with the word. Amen. He was coming to Austin. And we went down there. And they had the normal worship service in the beginning. But everybody was there to see him. The comedian. They wanted to be entertained. That's what I mean by people go to church to be entertained. Amen? If the only reason a person comes to church is to be entertained, then something is wrong with that person's relationship to God. If a pastor or any other person in the church does or says anything for any other reason than to glorify and magnify the name of Jesus Christ, then he or she is sinning against God. If you or someone says, church was boring today, then you were there for the wrong reason. You are to go to church to worship, not to be entertained, to worship. If you as a pastor or preacher during the course of your sermon prep, Or as often happens to me is when I'm preaching. In the middle of your sermon. God gives you a word to say. And then you begin to question yourself. If I say this sister so and so is going to get mad. Or brother so and so is going to be offended. Some people may actually get up and walk out. That's going to impact the offering. Because it hadn't even been collected yet. If you find yourself saying things like this, it's for that person God is wanting you to speak. Sometimes the best wake-up call is a good slap in the face. Amen? Well, Brother Bob, what happens if they get offended and leave the church? What's that to you? What is that to you? Do you serve God or man? If God tells you to say this, and you say, thus saith the Lord, and you let it rip. And three quarters of the church goes, I ain't sitting here for this. And they get up and walk out. What is that to you? If you are doctrinally 100% correct, and you know that the Holy Spirit has told you to say this, what is that to you? Well, Brother Bob, there'll be sheep without a shepherd. No, they won't. Half of them will come back anyway. The other half will go find another church. Maybe God's trying to get them out of your church and into the church he wants them to be in. Well, what about the offerings, our budget, all this stuff? Do you serve God or man? Do you trust God or trust those people filling the pews to meet the needs of the church? Amen? If God told you to say what you were told to say, then God is responsible for what happens. Amen. Don't shut me down when I'm preaching good. Let me give you another example. Luke chapter 18. We see the story about the rich young ruler who came to Jesus seeking justification for his lifestyle. What well, does that sound familiar today? Amen. He was basically asking Jesus to tell him he was good to go. And then in return, he'd probably give Jesus an offering. That's probably what he'd done with religious leaders of, the past, of, of, of his day. Kind of like what the Catholic Church does to mafia members. Oh, there I go stepping on toes again. You know, you can't buy your salvation. Even though that's one thing the Catholic Church says you can do. Anyway, glory to God. We read, beginning in verse 18, a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why are you calling me good? No one is good except one, that's God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. And he interrupted and said, All these I've kept from my youth up. And when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, You lack only one thing sell all that you have, distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When he heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he was very rich. Some Bible commentators say this was probably supposed to be Judas' replacement. God was lining him up for a huge blessing. But he didn't want to change his life. Jesus did not preach smooth things to him. He hit him right across the face with the one thing that was holding him back. (coughs) Holding him back from achieving more in his life than he could even imagine. He loved money more than he loved God. Jesus didn't hold back from saying what the Spirit of God told him to say. And it shouldn't hold you back either, preacher. Amen. Even though that man left, he had heard the word, the seed had been planted. And that's all we're supposed to do. Jesus said, in I think it was Mark 20, the sower sows money. No. The sower sows the word. That's it. The word. If they get a huffy and walk off, you sowed the word. And now it's been planted in their heart. Let God take care of the rest. Amen. We as a nation need to experience another great awakening. But before that could happen, we have to recognize our need for revival. And we have to change our attitudes towards spending time in prayer and Bible study. You know, in Deuteronomy 29, is recorded that God said, even though the temple was very beautiful, that if the Israelites turned their backs on him, that a day would come when people would pass by its ruins and say, why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to this temple? Verse 25 says, Because they have forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of Egypt. They embraced other gods, worshipping and serving them. That's why he brought all this disaster upon them. In the 28th chapter of Deuteronomy, it also has something important to say to us about God's covenant with the nation of Israel. Verses 1 through 3 in Deuteronomy 28 says, If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands that I give you today, the Lord your God will set you on high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings will come upon you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. Moses then lists several ways that God would bless the nation of Israel. He said that God would bless them economically, that their crops and their herds would be bountiful. He also said God would protect them from their enemies. And it's well documented that the forefathers of the United States founded this nation on Christian principles. And I believe that is the main reason that God has blessed the United States so much during the 230 plus years of our existence. We are, without a doubt, the richest, most powerful nation on the face of the earth. Our government, our way of life, our freedoms are envied by so many people around the world. This, in despite of the attempts of the current politicians who are trying to tear it down and destroy it. But I'm not going to get off on that subject. That's for another day. I want you to read with me God's warning to the nation of Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 15, he said, However, if you do not obey the Lord your God, and you do not carefully follow all of his commands, and you do not follow the decrees I've given you today, then all of these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And he then goes into great detail concerning the curses. He said he'd curse their cities and their fields. He said that he would curse their crops and their herds. He said he'd strike them down with diseases. And finally, he said he would cause them to be defeated before their enemies. And folks, I believe that the United States of America is at that point right now today. We are at the weakest we've ever been since the Vietnam War. Brother Bob, how can you say that? I mean, our military military is still the greatest in the world. I believe that. I served a good portion of my life in the U.S. Army. But if you find yourself fighting against God, I don't care who you are, you will not win. One Boy Scout anointed by God could defeat an entire army if God anointed him to do that. I don't think for even one minute that the God of Islam, Allah, is greater than our God. That is not happening. But I can read the Bible and see where God allowed other insignificant nations that worship false idols defeat Israel when Israel refused to obey. What makes the United States of America any better than the nation of Israel? Nothing. Nothing. Not one thing. So if God did it to them, and he had a covenant to protect them, if all they had to do was obey, and when they failed to obey, he allowed them to be defeated by small, insignificant countries, then the same thing can happen to the United States if we do not obey. Amen. Anyway... King Solomon and the nation of Israel did not heed God's warnings. Instead, they drifted away from God. In 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 4, it says, As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. And it got so bad that the Israelites were actually sacrificing their own children to Moloch. The God of the Amorites, who can be referenced to the God of the abortionists. That's right, abortion is a form of worshipping a false god. But again, that's a sermon for another day. Now, as a result of their disobedience and sin, God allowed a civil war to split the nation into two. Then in 722 BC, he allowed the Assyrians to come in and completely destroy the northern kingdom of Israel. Isn't it a coincidence that Syria is again about to inflict punishment on, this time, the United States for our sins? You see, God never changes. Anyway, 155 years later, the nation of Israel still had not repented of their sins. So he allowed this time the Babylonians to conquer and completely destroy the city of Jerusalem, burning everything including God's temple that Solomon had built. You see, they believed that hey, they had the temple, and God would never allow that temple to be desecrated. Think again. In the fifth chapter of Isaiah, we read about another time when God's people had turned away from him. God had promised to protect Israel from their enemies as long as they worshipped and served him. But, once again... They turned to other gods. So in verse 5 he said, Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I'll take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I'll break down its wall and it'll be trampled. I'll make it a wasteland. Neither pruned nor cultivated briars and thorns will grow there. Has God removed the hedge that's been protecting the United States of America? I believe he did briefly remove it during 9-11. The following weekend, that's what I preached about. It was a warning. And it was a warning then, but it may be permanent now. We have to see sin for what it really is and then confess it and get rid of it. Repent. It needs to be forsaken, left behind once and for all. This, folks, is a wake-up call for the Christians in America.
0: until next time, when we gather together around the Word of God, be blessed. And remember, we serve an awesome God. With the Lucky Land Sluts, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky.